This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. So do you guys have like runner's high experiences regularly? Yes, all the time. It puts me in a totally different mood. I'll often just do like a 20 minute run. Like it'll totally turn my day around. I'll feel so much better. And then the other one is like what I call exercise goggles, which is when I look in the mirror at myself after I've done a good run, like I just like like the way I look much better and I, I can't explain it. Welcome to How To. I'm science writer David Epstein and I'm also a runner. That's been harder to be this past year. When the pandemic hit, the phrase stay home, it practically became a social mantra. Sitting on your couch and watching Netflix was literally everyone's duty to humanity. Physical activity changed. And for a lot of people, exercise routines were totally disrupted. But now, as we reemerge, we're all trying to get back in the swing of things and push ourselves toward new challenges. My name is Shannon Paulus. I'm a senior editor at Slate. I've run three marathons and I'm training for my fourth. And how much are you running right now? <laughs> like 10 miles a week. I really, I'm just about to start ramping up for training, but I get really lazy about it when I don't have that week one on my schedule. Shannon's anything but lazy. When the New York City Marathon was canceled because of the pandemic, she still ran the race. It just didn't look how she thought it would. I signed up for the virtual New York City Marathon, which is a lot fancier sounding than it is. It <laughs> involved me running by myself for 26.2 miles, or actually like 26.5 miles, because I really wanted to make sure like <laughs> you know, my GPS wasn't messing up and going to like screw me out of getting my like little spot on the leaderboard. But for Shannon, it wasn't tracking the miles that was her biggest challenge. It was motivating herself to run when she was all alone. I had done a piece earlier in the summer for Slate about people who ran virtual races, and I went into reporting that with the attitude of, like, why are you paying $60, $100 to run around your own neighborhood? But when <laughs> it came time to really think about the training for the race, I paid New York Roadrunners $60 so that they would send me a medal in the mail afterwards if I finished. <laughs> I, ne I really needed that motivation. The ways we can use our brains to trick our bodies into extraordinary feats of physical endurance are totally wild and totally amazing. That's particularly true when it comes to distance running, which humans are specially evolved to do. On today's show, how to run farther than you think you can, whether you're a washed up college track star, like yours truly, or a wannabe beginner. We've got the running tips to take you to the next level. Think of this not as running 101, but 201. And if the thought of running makes you want to turn off this podcast right now, trust us when we say that some of these hacks, they'll motivate you in whatever it is that you're doing. Shannon will be joined by Alex Hutchinson, who wrote a best-selling book on the neuroscience of endurance. He also happens to have a physics PhD and ran at the Olympic trials. When you're in the middle of a race and you're trying to go as fast as you can, the automatic assumption is, why am I not going faster? It's like, well, there must be, you know, I'm reaching the limits of what my heart can do or what my muscles can do. That feeling that you can't go any faster in the middle of the race, that is a feeling that is created in the brain. And so it turns out if, if you can change your internal monologue, you're able to, to sort of 
tweak the settings in your brain of what it thinks is a reasonable pace for you to be going halfway through a marathon. We'll tell you how to tweak those settings and much more right after this break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. Shannon Paulus first started running in middle school. Not because she particularly liked it, but because she was required to play a sport, and she really wanted to avoid soccer. So my dad said, you know, let's like go for a run together, and maybe that can be your thing. I went for maybe a quarter of a mile. It was really hard. I hated it. It still seemed less bad than the soccer stuff. So I <laughs> wow, signed up you really for... don't like soccer, huh? <laughs> I just don't have the like the spatial ability to, you know, kick a ball. So running, in contrast, seems like the quote-unquote easy way out. Shannon ran cross-country and track all through high school, but then she stopped running entirely until she picked it up again about five years ago, in her mid-20s. I signed up for my first half marathon and really loved the structure of training for a race. I'm not a super competitive runner. I have a tendency to be type A, and so running is one area of my life where I really try to just not bring stats into it, not care about times. And when I'm having a hard time on a run, I'll usually just remind myself, like, this is like your chill out time. This is your time to, like, listen to Taylor Swift and, <laughs> you know, watch the ducks in the park. <laughs> Our running expert, Alex Hutchinson, on the other hand, has long been focused on the competitive side of the sport. My earliest running memories, I think, go back to kindergarten. <laughs> I remember winning a race across the, the gym and beating the big kid, Stephen Mills, which was a huge... Uh, Sorry, Stephen, but it was, it was a huge, huge deal. Alex is now 45 and the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. He's a columnist at Outside Magazine, and he's run a long way since beating Stephen Mills in kindergarten. When I was a teenager, about 15, I started training, quote-unquote, seriously. And I ran through college and, and post-collegiately for about, say, a decade. I, I was trying to make the Olympics, which we all are in, in, in some ways in our dreams. Alex was a two-time finalist in the 1,500 meters at the Canadian Olympic trials. At the peak of his career, he was a four-minute miler. And then, after performing at a high level for so long, he decided to give himself a break. 
After the 2004 Olympic trials, I stopped running for about a year, just trying to see what it would be like without running. And pretty soon I found myself, just almost without even thinking about it, heading out for a run a couple times a week, and then it was three or four times a week, and then it was daily. And and I realized that I, I didn't just love running to compete, I really just enjoyed it as part of my my routine that made me feel good both physically and mentally. That transformation from running to compete to just running for yourself, that's something I can totally relate to. I started running track late in high school. I was an 800 meter runner and I walked onto my college team. Then I got a lot better in college and I ended up as a university record holder. But after that kind of peak and the come down, I thought I'd basically like never want to run again because I would always feel like I was in bad shape. So I stopped. Cold turkey, no running. But then eventually, like Alex, I realized I missed it. I realized I actually loved running for running, that it's a great way to get outside, it lifts my mood, fills my head with creative thoughts, and I love the running community. It's really welcoming, and I love watching other people's races. Honestly, I actually bought my current house because it's near the entrance to running trails I like. Running has a really different place in my life now than when I was competing, but it's still a really big and important place in my life. And this might be our first rule. To figure out what motivates you to run, Reflect on why you started running in the first place, and then think about how you've changed and about what you need from running now. You know, the the virtual marathon that I did, I was very much alone, except for the other folks I passed in the park who were like wearing their little printed out bibs. Right. Like, I, I need a thing. I need a carrot. I'm very classic millennial, like once her gold star kind of thing. <laughs> so and, and I think that like, it's just that, that little piece of my psychology that I think is actually like hackable with the like, okay, well, like you can have this medal if you do that. <laughs> and then my something in my brain shifts where I'm like, sure, that sounds great. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no doubt that competition is a rocket fuel for performance and also for motivation. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of I'm trying to beat that person that I'm racing against. There are some great studies that people have done showing that even if you're, so you go into the lab, you do a race, and then they computerize your performance. You come back to the lab and they say, okay, you're going to be racing against yourself. Can you beat what you did last week? In virtually all cases, yes, people can beat what they did last week because they know they're capable of it. They've done it before and they know they just have to go a little bit faster. And then when researchers secretly speed up the avatar that you're racing against, so you think you're racing against your own previous performance, but in fact, it's going 1% or 2% faster. Sure enough, you'll go 1% faster or 2% (laughs) faster. If you crank the dial too much, if you try and go 5% faster, then it backfires. So then people fade and they lose their motivation. But this taps into some some sort of deep-seated desire to compete. So David, you and I both experienced that running in college and we sort of made the mistake of thinking that that was the only reason we ran yeah and it's it's kind of like that i think the games we play with ourselves to get out the door shannon knows that the medal from the virtual new york marathon is not going to change her life but she also knows that she needs to set that goal to give structure and shape and and impetus to her training and i have to say i've sort of been afraid of racing i, I kind of felt like after racing at kind of a national level, I'm almost like afraid to race in like road races because I'm like going to feel bad about myself in comparison to where I used to race. Do you have that problem at all? Yeah, uh, 100%. But I've raced one track race since the Olympic trials in 2004. And that there's no good reason for that other than ego, right? The one race that I've done pretty much every year is a, a race near me in Toronto called the the Spring Runoff. And it's an 8K race in a very hilly park. So the times are meaningless. So that's even another way of just like Mm -hmm, taking away mm -hmm. the focus. Now, it's still fun. 
I'm trying to find different yardsticks so that I'm not quite as directly always comparing myself to what I did in the past. That's like definitely how I thought about running a marathon during a pandemic. (laughs) Often Mm -hmm. in races, I'll be staring at those like big signs that they have with the time on them every Mm -hmm. time you pass Mm -hmm. a mile and calculating my speed in my head. I knew for running alone in a pandemic, I was going to be in danger of just looking at my Garmin every two seconds Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. getting obsessive over that. So I actually like made a deal with myself that I wasn't going to look at my time. And every time my Garmin buzzed, I had this stack of like 26 note cards in one of my pockets on my little hydration pack. Mm. And they had like all the cheesy sayings that you see on t-shirts at races. (laughs) And every time my Garmin buzzed, I would pull one out and just kind of like meditate on it for a while. So kind of changing the stakes of it, saying this isn't going to be about time at all. You're in danger of like making this all about time because you're alone. You're not going to be very fast because you're alone. So this is going to be about like kind of reveling in a little bit of that marathon spirit the best way that I could. That's really cool. Using your Garmin buzz as a cue. Can you share like a quote or two that you remember that you liked? I had, you're faster than you think, which is a Nike slogan. We adopted it on my cross country team in high school. And like, I also had some prompts of like, think of five places you want to travel when this is over, that kind of thing. So here's our next tip for running farther or faster than you think you can. Create your own metrics for evaluating and rewarding yourself. A formal competition is friggin' great, but as times change and you change, it may no longer be the best way to motivate yourself. Making up your own goals and your own rewards, it'll still push you to be better, and it's a more sustainable way of approaching running in, well, the long run. When we come back, Alex will dive into the science behind how our brains trick our bodies into doing more than we think is possible. We're not at the finish line quite yet. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions, built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When Alex Hutchinson was a junior in college, he kept running the same times for the 1500 meters. For four years, actually, he'd been stuck running the same times, and he'd become obsessed with his pacing. 
knowing he needed to run each 200 meter segment in exactly 32 seconds to reach his goal. But then during one race, something weird happened. The actual race where I had my breakthrough, the timekeeper basically missed the start. I didn't realize it at the time, but he, <laughs> he was calling out splits that were three seconds off. He basically fooled me into thinking I was having this amazing run. I was going through the first lap in 27 seconds, but feeling pretty good. After about three laps, I was like, I don't know what's happening. I just have superpowers today. So I'm just, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to, you know, 27 take seconds the shackles. For the 200, be like way under four minute mile pace. It, it would be world record pace. So yeah. <laughs> I knew I knew something was funny, but in the race, your, your brain doesn't always work. All I knew is that I was running fast and I was feeling good. And I ended up running a nine second personal best after, you know, running within wow. sort of a second or two over and over again for four years. It was a real sort of revelation to me that, Sometimes more information wasn't helping me, more information was holding me back and, and getting me stuck in this template of running the same times over and over again. Alex's aha moment that how he was thinking about his race actually impacted his final performance became a key to the way he considers the science behind running. You know, Shannon has already sort of intuitively picked up subtle factors like whether you refer to yourself in first person or second person or even third person. And one of the things that switching from I can do this to you can do this does is it creates a sort of sense of distancing. You're watching this struggle play out as opposed to being stuck in, you know, in the arena, feeling all these emotions running over you. And so there was a study at the University of Bangor in, in Wales. They had a bunch of people replace I with you and they went, I can't remember, it was 2 or 3% faster in a, in a time trial, those who'd been trained to switch the pronoun. This is perhaps our favorite recurring rule here on how to. Treat yourself to some positive third-person or distanced self-talk. Alex, you mentioned people think of it, you know, what's going on in your heart and your, and your lungs and your legs, basically, when they're running. But in fact, the brain acts as this kind of master integrator where it is collecting that data, but also data from the environment, how hot it is outside, how bright the sun is, how much you care about what you're doing, and, and sort of forms that into a composite that basically decides how bad you're going to feel. And that all these things, like your motivational quotes and, and your reason for being in the race, actually all factor into that, along with things like, you know, how much hemoglobin you have in your in your bloodstream and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it, because one of the, the sort of classic errors or misdirections when, when we talk about body versus brain is to think it's all one or all the other. And when you say, well, it's all in your head, then it's like, oh, I can just decide. But what's going on in your head depends on what's going on in your body. It's integrating all these signals, as you said, from your legs, from your heart. So one of the examples that I really like is a study that was done uh, at the University of Kent in Britain, where they, they actually just flashed smiling faces or frowning faces, uh, pictures of smiling faces or frowning faces on the wall in front of cyclists, 16 milliseconds at a time. So, so less than a blink. They were unaware that there were any faces. And but when the when there were smiling faces flashed on the wall in front of them, they lasted twelve percent longer in a, in an endurance test than when there were frowning faces. Mm. Seeing smiling faces puts you in a slightly more positive mood, and it, and it, these subtle factors can accumulate into a measurable difference in your performance. Shannon also mentioned not being addicted to the Garmin and checking your your pace all the time. And Shannon, can can you just talk again a little bit about why do you try to not be too addicted, get too obsessed? I feel like my, my brain is very adept at weaponizing data against me. I think Alex mentioned he has a <laughs> well, similar sorry. thing too. And I, I feel like any bit of data that I start collecting on myself, if I'm not really, really careful about it, I can start saying, you know, you ran 10 minute miles today. Like that's 
not as good as a couple years ago or like that's so slow like you used to think that would be so slow that kind of negative self-talk it's just a breeding ground for negative self-talk for me it's like just like shannon it's a day where i can't check my phone i'm not sure i want it to become more rigid i don't want to be checking a screen i don't want something beeping at me to tell me i've fallen off my my goals here's another rule less information can actually be better at least some of the time limit the information you give yourself Even a lot of pro runners will ditch the GPS watch at times and instead just take days where they run according to how their body feels rather than a specific pace. And ultimately, I think if you want to run your best race, you need to learn what it feels like to be at the right pace, not by looking at a watch, but by noticing your breathing or just feeling what your legs feel like. And I can remember 20 years ago, I was training with a group in Washington, D.C., coached by Matt Centrowitz, who's a former American record holder. And he's very much an advocate of intuitive running, learning to feel when the moment is to push. And I'm very much an advocate of give me all the information I can get. You know, we'd be training around a 400 meter track. And if it was my turn to lead an interval, I would check my watch at the 100 meter mark, at the 200 meter mark, at the 300 meter mark, and at the 400 meter mark to make sure I wasn't going to screw up the first lap for the rest of the group. And every once in a while, Centro would, would catch me peeking at my watch every 100 meters. And he'd just yell at me, you know, take off your goddamn watch and throw it in the infield. And so I'd be in the middle of running a mile rep. I'd have to stop, peel off my watch, my, my <laughs> sacred watch, the watch that you know recorded all my workouts for me for my training log, and I'd have to just throw it in the infield and hope that no one would step on it. But he was, you know, he, he was making a really important point, which is that if I couldn't feel the right pace in this controlled conditions of a workout, how was I going to go to a race and feel it? And learning how to run according to how your body feels, knowing when to push and when to back off. That's particularly important when it comes to preventing injury. So my main injury came when I was training uh, for what I wanted to be my first marathon. And I'd done several half marathons before that. And kind of as soon as my mileage built up past that like half marathon mileage, I started getting pain in like my knee and my ankle and my shin sort of all at once. And I ignored it for like half a week and... And then it was so great that I was having trouble walking. I went to, you know, like a knee or leg doctor or whatever and was like, please do an x-ray. Like something horrible has to be happening in my body. And he, he was kind of a jerk, actually. He was like, yeah, you runners push yourselves too much. And then I ended up sitting on my couch for like a week straight and training just enough to like make it through the half marathon on race day, like very slowly. And it was wildly disappointing. And the effect on my training since has been that I'm super conservative with my mileage now Mm -hmm. when I'm training for the marathon. I think it's fair to say that most researchers would agree that the vast majority of running injuries are a function of doing too much too soon. The problem is you only really know how much too much is or how soon too soon is after you're like, ah, I can't move, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think being conservative is generally the, the right approach. But of course, being conservative doesn't it doesn't necessarily maximize your performance. So you, you end up having to sort of become a connoisseur of, of aches and pains and twinges. <laughs> and like, is this a twinge that I can run through or is this, you know, a harbinger of doom? Um, and we don't always get it right. Here's our next rule. We can give you all the tips and tricks about running shoes. Spoiler alert, doesn't matter as much as you think. And music choice, There's actually research that shows up-tempo music will increase your stride rate, but none of that advice is going to work if you don't learn how to listen to your body and figure out what's right for you. 
this might sound hippy dippy as Alex put it, but diving into a challenge like running, it's all about learning to push our bodies in the right way for us. I think anyone who's, who's trained in, I've been part of a university track team, has seen the, some of the, yeah, this is a complicated topic, but there is a, a longstanding cultural problem in, in the way issues of like weight control are approached. And it's one thing, you know, you can make this general statement that if you're carrying extra weight, you're going to run more slowly. Um, but unfortunately, that, 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 that may be true in physics, but it doesn't actually hold up when you're talking about human beings. You know, the, the minimum body fat for a healthy male athlete might be something like 5%. The minimum for a woman is probably something more like 12%. And so if you, if you just treat men and women the same, you end up with women who have serious and potentially long-term health problems. And this is something that has happened a lot over the last, let's say, 50 years. I feel like in general, there's this perception that runners are kind of these skinny greyhounds that, you know, are, are really fit and look a certain way and have abs and, you know, wear for women, like wear size two dresses or whatever. I think that that's just not true. I think that a lot of skinnier people that are, quote unquote, fit this conception of health are the folks who are encouraged to run and are the folks who, you know, maybe are out there racking up the world records and in the Olympics and whatnot. And I, I think that's really unfortunate because if you try to alter your weight because you think it's going to make you a better runner, like often, especially for women, that's just a recipe for a psychological disaster. And, you know, you, you can't run a good marathon if you're starving yourself. You can't run a good marathon if you're being awful to yourself because you, you think your ass is too fat. One of the people that comes to mind for me in discussions like this is a woman named Myrna Valerio. She is a very proudly plus-sized runner. Uh, she lives in Vermont, and she runs ultramarathons. And she runs them very slowly. And she doesn't look like your quote-unquote typical runner. Myrna Valerio, I believe, weighs more than me and is certainly much more fit than I am. Like, I cannot go out and run 50 miles right now, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but she can. Where would you say running fits in terms of the hierarchy of, like, the best things you can do to be fit? Yeah, I mean, for, fortunately, I'm totally unbiased on this question, so I can give you the, the absolute <laughs> definitive answer. I think that it's hard to beat running for an accessible, convenient, and extremely potent way of getting fit. That being said, I look at myself, I've been running for a long time, I, I'm, I'm quite thin. It's like, if I want to age healthily, <laughs> I, I need to put on some muscle. And so I, I take my, my strength training fairly, not well, I wouldn't say seriously, but I, I do it religiously a couple times a week. It's part of a balanced diet of exercise. If someone else loves cycling or they love, you know, joggling, which is running and juggling, or if they love <laughs> swimming or, you know, or playing tennis or whatever the case may be, you know, there is no one right answer. Absolutely. If you think you might like running, but you've gone on a couple of runs and they're just like really freaking hard, like stick with it and be easy yeah, on yourself. Yeah. But also if you don't like it, don't do it. I, I don't, I, I get, I feel like running sort of has this like high station in the hierarchy of fitness where people, maybe this is just like my warped perception, but people think like runners are super fit and like doing something super difficult. And like, maybe that would be, that, that's sort of something to aspire to. If, if you don't like it, don't aspire to it. I, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, my heart sort of breaks when I hear people like, oh, I wish I could make myself jog more. And I'm like, no, don't, don't jog more. Like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be fine. Here's our final rule. Don't run. That is, if you really don't want to. There's no one look to fitness. 
but I hope after hearing this, you'll at least consider it more than maybe you did before. Still, as long as you're finding ways to challenge yourself that feel good for you, you're winning the most important race. Shannon, you sort of talked about turning your day around with a run. Are there other things that you've sort of learned in running that that you think apply to other parts of your work or life? Yeah, I think, like, I, I run not because I'm, like, fantastic at it or because I'm going to win any special awards for it. I do it because I really love it. And I try to apply that to my writing and editing life as much as possible. I have aspirations of writing a novel, and I, I haven't even gotten to the part where, like, I'm really, like, sitting down and being serious about it. But in strategizing about how I would do that, I, I try to think of it like, okay, like this is a little bit like your goal to run a marathon. Like mm. you're going to plan it out in a similar way to like doing this really like intense thing that ultimately is going to be mostly for you. To me, r- running is a metaphor for pretty much everything. And I think running really taught me that it's fun to have goals to strive for and that if you're lucky enough to achieve them, it will not fill the, the the gap in your soul. No matter how fast you run, there's always someone who's running faster, and there's always and you always discover that you believe you can run a little faster. And so, focusing instead on enjoying the pursuit of the the goal, as opposed to thinking that the goal is going to change everything for me. Shannon, are you thinking about running an ultra? Yes. <laughs> the goal is to run uh, a fifty miler at some point. I kind of think I had a goal to do an ultra at some point, even before I had a goal to do a marathon. Mm-hmm. I, that doesn't make any sense, but it just it seems like something that is so difficult to do and so out of my grasp. And, and, and so I would like to try it. Thank you to Shannon Paulus and Alex Hutchinson for sharing all their running wisdom. Be sure to look for Shannon's work at Slate, especially her series on running she hosted for The Working Podcast a couple of years ago. We'll link to it in the show notes. And look for Alex's book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And you can find him on Twitter, at Sweat Science. And all that talk about running, I gotta say, it really got me fired up. I actually went out to the track at 10 p.m. and did some intervals, which leads to my final tip. If you're still working from home sometimes, wear your running clothes, and you'll have a much better chance of getting out the door at the end of the day. Finally, if you, like Shannon, are interested in running an ultra marathon someday, check out our episode called How to Withstand Pain. It features an ultra runner who gets some unorthodox advice from the Dutch extreme athlete Wim Hof. Look for it in our feed. Do you have a problem that needs solving? Do you have a hundred miler that you're training for or something that just feels like it? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We might have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson, Margaret Kelly, and Rachel Allen produced the show. And this is actually Rachel's last episode with us, so we want to wish her the best in her next adventure. Good luck, Rachel. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg is host emeritus. I'm David Epstein. Thanks for listening.